From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Great to be back after a couple of weeks away. Going to talk a little bit more about that later on in the show when I ask you as well for some of your travel nightmare stories. More on that coming up, though. We are starting the show talking about what is happening on Bowen Island. It is a much-loved community for people that live on Bowen Island. It's also a place that many people love going to, whether for a few days, for a day trip. And as you likely know, there has been a lot of feedback about a plan to bring in a campground on a regional park. Well, what is happening and what is the latest on that? We are joined now by Andrew Leonard, the mayor of the Bowen Island municipality. Mayor Leonard, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me here today, Joe. Well, so many things have happened, I think, since we chatted last. I wanted to start by asking you about this proposal, I suppose, that's been put forward by the Bowen Island Conservancy and offering or or asking that perhaps they would be able to purchase the property to buy the land back from Metro Vancouver. I know we don't know at this point where this, this $30 million has come from, but what are your thoughts on the fact that this proposal is even out there? Um, I think it's probably the next step for the Conservancy. So the Conservancy, the Bowen Island Conservancy is a, is a non-profit uh, charitable society here on the island that's independent from Bowen Island Council. So even though they share the name Bowen Island, they're not a, a part of council. Um, but I had introduced them back in March to Metro Vancouver um, when at that time they had about uh, uh, $20 million, I believe, of, of pledged donations uh, and they had asked me whether, you know, it would make sense to uh, approach Metro Vancouver with a, um, you know, looking to partner with them um, on some conservation-related activities uh, for the Cape Roger Curtis, uh, or the proposed park at Cape Roger Curtis, and, uh, you know, both in conservation and the type of camping. I believe they were looking for some science-based uh, uh, measures to define carrying capacity out there. And my understanding um, contained in the uh, proposal letter that was sent to Bowen Island Council as well as Metro Vancouver is that they didn't get much traction on that $20 million donation. Um, so, uh, you know, it appears that they've uh, raised more money and um, are potentially looking at a, at a purchase of the land outright. What are your thoughts on that? If they were able to purchase the land and that would be a way to stop this park from going ahead and more specifically to stop the camping from going ahead? Right, right. So, I mean, the primary issue with the camping that's been identified both by the Islands Trust, which is one of our uh, regional governments, as well as Bowen Island Council and Committee and Community, is that it's it's the impacts to the park. So the impact of having thousands and thousands and thousands more visitors um, trying to get out to the far side of the island, um, clogging up an already uh, uh, saturated ferry link. Um, uh, has been has been the primary challenge. Now, whether the, uh, you know, my belief generally is that those lands were originally zoned as 10-acre um, residential um, estate lots, basically. So whether it, it ends up as a regional park or ends up as a conservation-protected conservancy, I think those are both higher and better uh, uh, uses of uh, the land than um, uh, uh, estate housing. Uh, so better uses of the land, but very different uses, because like you said, it's the camping that really has a lot of residents that are, that are concerned about this. And looking, I was looking at a letter that was written by one concerned resident saying mm-hmm. that a development of this massive scale will cause severe stress to the existing resources here. Scarce water, limited emergency services, crumbling roads, infrastructure, and an already overburdened ferry. It says Bowen cannot possibly emotionally or physically absorb the strife 
that this development will bring to the island. And I think that does, for those who are opposed, that that does Mm. sum up a big part of the opposition. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so I mean, what's worth noting is that is that in that statement, there's nothing that says it's that's a direct result of camping. So what Bowen Island Council has asked for uh, uh, previously, what our committees have asked for, and now even the Islands Trust has weighed in, is that, yes, it, it stresses the ferries, it stresses roads, it stresses the ability of residents to uh, go back to the mainland the other way. So um, our requests were that uh, the impact of a large, you know, what would be Metro Vancouver's largest um, campground to date be mitigated in the form of figuring out how to get people across the island, how to get people from the mainland to the island, um, figuring out issues of water, of uh, uh, over-visitation that we see in other areas, right? I mean, we're, we're a very um, tourist, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of tourist impact on this island that on a community of 4,200 people, which is basically the size of a large high school, is, is becoming increasingly difficult to mitigate. So, you know, I think it's fair that we, we ask our regional partners to um, uh, have some responsibility and take some accountability for that impact. So, you know, in the end, it's 240 acres of land which could support 100 campsites. I mean, that's a lot of land. It seems, it seems reasonable. But what you heard in that statement and what you're hearing from our council and from our community and now the Islands Trust is that, you know, it's everything that exists outside of that um, that's going to have to deal with that increased visitation. Uh, that's the main issue. Right, because even the the same letter that was written, it says the applicant is using all the right jargon regarding limiting car use and encouraging bikes and walking, uh, but there's been no agreement to any kind of multi-use path or bike path. Uh, And it says, while there's been mention again of the possible shuttle that campers would use, there really aren't a lot of details. So are those things, do you think, that need to be worked out soon? Uh, I, I would say so, and, and to that end, I, I requested a meeting with Metro Vancouver, uh, uh, both staff and politicians, senior staff and politicians, that happened earlier in the month. Um, and the message that we got, you know, even in the face of the, the Island Trust decision that says that, that their proposal isn't in compliance, was that we wouldn't see any amendments or changes um, uh, to the underlying concept or, uh, you know, a lot of help to mitigate those impacts forthcoming, uh, which, makes it, which makes it challenging because this could be a tremendous regional asset. I, I think it could be, um, uh, you know, even a national treasure should uh, we build out active transportation, build out um, public transit going to, a, to a, a park like this, but we just haven't seen the movement uh, needed to, to get that done. If that was all done, though, and I know there are many people who who think this is great, it would be fabulous to go and be mm-hmm. able to camp on Bowen and take take part in this. Would it not really change? And and not saying that that areas don't go through change, but it, would it not completely change the feel in the community of Bowen Island? Um, I think that's hard to change. It's hard to define. I mean, we we know that that regional growth is happening already. So change, change is coming, and it's really how are we going to work with that change? How are we going to adapt that change? And, and we're, on a, we're you know, similar in some respects to, um, to other communities that are, that are neighboring large metropolises that are struggling with that growth. So, you know, there's going to be change, but what we don't want to do and what we're asking Metro Vancouver for is to have adequate planning and to have adequate resources in place that we can adopt, adapt to that change. You know, supporting that change on the back of 4,200 taxpayers, which, you know, again, we're like the size of a small high school, um, just, just isn't feasible for millions and millions of infrastructure.
Uh, we put a, a note out, a request out for more information from Metro Vancouver, specifically about the, the $30 million proposal from the Conservancy. Uh, they wrote back saying, uh, as you know, we have received an expression of interest from Bowen Island Conservancy to purchase the land set aside for a proposed regional park. Uh, the Vancouver Board of Directors will consider the proposal. We cannot provide comment before they have had an opportunity to discuss. Uh, how soon do you think there needs to be a decision or a response from Metro Vancouver on whether or not they're even taking that $30 million proposal seriously? Um, it, will be, it will be up to them. So uh, I can't comment on timing. I would assume that within the next month it will come before the board and, and the regional uh, parks committee. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that it has. You know, I have to wonder if the Conservancy going public with their offer, given that they've been in conversation with Metro Vancouver since March, has really um, uh, uh, been a catalyst to actually getting that process going and getting it, front of, uh, getting it in front of the Metro Vancouver Regional Parks Committee and the Metro Vancouver Board of Directors. If they accept it, is that the end of the park, the end of the issue of camping? Um, hard to say, you know, I think, I think anything is, is possible. It would become conservancy land. So the conservancy owns 30 acres directly adjacent to that land already. And they manage it as a, uh, they call it the wild coast refuge and public are allowed in it and, and there's trails in it. Um, so as far as the future of that land, I mean, the conservancy would be, they could seek out partners, they could manage it themselves. They will need to figure out resources to, um, uh, to manage that land themselves. So, you know, I, I don't think it's out of the question, but it would it would definitely be out of the question for now. Uh, have you heard, dealt with a, an issue as divisive as this one uh, as mayor, looking at how it has divided the community and, and there are so many people that, yes, there are supporters, but there are so many people opposed to this. Have you ever dealt with something of this magnitude before? Uh, not of this magnitude. This is this has really dominated my uh, my life over the last year. It's been uh, uh, very passionate. It's been the the feedback has been almost nonstop, um, and part of it is 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 in response. I think to you know we're asking to be collaborative partners in this. The conservancy asked to be a collaborative partner in this with twenty million dollars back in March. Uh, we've been asking as a council. Our committees have asked. We've had our community ask, but we haven't. You know when we have. Um, a phase two of their concept unveiled in the summer after a lot of um, community consultation don't see any changes or any plans to mitigate some of this impact. I mean, it really um, uh, frustrates a small community that's already dealing with tourist growth. So, you know, just just in context, we have Crippen Park, which is a Metro Vancouver regional park on the island. And that park itself is responsible for driving one third of all traffic to the island. So one third of all traffic coming to the island is coming to a Metro Vancouver uh, park already. Um, and, uh, you know, as a result of that, we're, of Cape Roger Curtis, we would only see that grow by thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Well, it is something we will continue uh, watching and keeping an eye on. Mayor Leonard, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jill. I, I appreciate talking to you again and have a great day. Well, as you just heard on the news, the city of Port Coquitlam is talking about receiving a report of a hate-motivated poster that was posted in the community at a bus stop. And Mayor Brad West spoke earlier today talking about how when he takes his kids to a park, one of the great things is seeing the diversity of the community. One of the best parts about living in our community is going to the park and to the playground and watching all the kids yahooing around and having fun and, you know, big smiles. And when you're out there, you know, they're just playing together and they're having a great time. It's a beautiful thing to see. And, and, and it's the full diversity of our community that's out there. Um, and the fact that there'd be an individual who, who looks at that and, and thinks that that's something wrong and 
try to spread this hateful message is um, just completely unacceptable. That was Mayor Brad West speaking earlier today on Mornings with Simi. Now, if you've not seen the picture of this post, it says, Join us for whites only, moms and tots. It goes on to say, Are you looking for somewhere your children can play with others that look like them? Are they tired of being a minority in their schools or daycares? Escape forced diversity and join other proud parents of European children as we create an atmosphere in which our kids can feel like they belong. Now, as you can imagine, this is offensive. Many people have talked about their outrage to seeing this. There's a website with it as well and a QR code that people can go to. But we wanted to talk about this more today because in the release put out earlier today. Not only have bylaw officers gone out, the Coquitlam RCMP have also been made aware of this incident and they are encouraging residents to report incidents such as this to the RCMP saying that a file number has now been opened for the public to report if any more signs are found. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Ari Goldkind, Goldkind who is a, a criminal lawyer, also a legal commentator a legal analyst and political commentator. Ari Goldkind, great to have you back on the show. Good to be back on with you. What is, from a legal point of view, this is obviously very offensive and some questioning whether or not it was even legitimate. But for this to be put out, for the RCMP to have a, a folder on this, is this something? is this something that could be classified as illegal or a hate crime? Good question. Easy answer. Not even in the zip code of a hate crime, not even in the zip code of the RCMP. They're all just busy clutching their pearls because everybody gets to look like a sensitive virtue signaling hero. I believe this sign is a punk or a prank. It doesn't feel real to me at all. I think it's getting the exact kind of response uh, that, you know, we've seen other similar kinds of plots get, but this is not hate speech. This is not willful incitement of hatred. This is not advocating genocide. So from a legal point of view, there is a real crisis in this country where people are confusing the right to be offensive or not to be offended versus something that's either a breach of the peace or a breach of the criminal law. And I'm just amazed when I watch these stories or I hear the mayor come out and give his opinion. You know, there's so much confusion here about this story that just because people think it's odious or don't like it, probably a lot of people do like it but won't say it publicly, that somehow this makes it a crime. It's not a crime, and the RCMP, to their great shame, should have actually done their job and said, well, look, this might be disgusting, offensive, odious, whatever you want it to be, depending on your politics, but no way does the RCMP have any business uh, pretending that this is a crime. And I, 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 I get what you're saying. And I mean, it's fine for the mayor to have an opinion. It, it, he is the mayor of that community. And he, he is certainly somebody who is offended by this. And there are many people, uh, like, like you say, there are many people who are offended. There are probably people who are not offended by this. Uh, so, so it sounds like you're saying as well, this, this should not have an RCMP file number. Not only should it not have an RCMP file number, you're well aware, and I'm sure you've covered on your show and your listeners know, there are a number of groups a uh, number of schools, a number of classes, a number of job postings that very brazenly say, if you're white, you cannot be employed here. We are employing people of color or indigenous 
or BIPOC people only. That's very common in my city in Toronto. It's now publicly posted. Nobody seems to go ballistic about that. So, you know, for the mayor to go on air and say this, okay, that, that's great. He's the mayor. He's doing what he thinks he needs to do as a politician. But, you know, the question here is, are we in a society now? And by the way, Joe, the answer is yes. We're in a society that now says if somebody says something that we think is disgusting, uh, vicious, odious, uh, mean, nasty, that somehow that's a call to the police. As a criminal defense lawyer, I'm very cautious about the criminal law, Jill. Not defamation, not civil, not bylaw, not the Human Rights Tribunal, not the Human Rights Commission. But when you look for the criminal law to start arresting people who say things that you think are ugly because that's the politics of the day, that's a very, very slippery slope. And no, the answer wearing better shoes is not an answer to that slippery slope. Uh, the post goes on and I tend to agree with you when I, I first looked at this even though there is a website and you can go to the website it, it seems like a punk or it seems like something exactly to get those uh, conversations to see what the reaction would be uh, there's another line in the post I think that is what people find quite offensive where it says invest in your child's sense of well-being and racial identity by giving them the gift of time spent amongst their own people uh, because they deserve it that's the last line of the post. So even if they were to find the person who posted this, that that was kind of my question. Even if they were to find the person and and or that person came out to, and said to the RCMP or said publicly, yeah, it was me. Is there even a charge that would be associated with that? Not not for a second. And you well know, and this is my point, and people should understand my point. You don't. Nobody has any idea what I think personally. But if you would have said this about a group that only welcomes young black youth, indigenous youth, lesbian, two-spirit youth, that says be around your own, nobody would have a problem with it. Somehow, when it's one race, the formerly most common race in this country, you get the mayor and you get everybody going ballistic. Again, maybe it's odious. Maybe people don't like it. Maybe people on the far left hate it. People on the far right will stay quiet. The question is a legal question. So if this person, and by the way, Jill, I do believe it's a punk. It's basically like the story in Toronto where that teacher came out, and I don't know if you saw the prosthetics. Mm-hmm, and did. it made, that was, I called that from the first moment that that is absolutely a punking. There's no way that's real, even in our crazy society. But if the person came forward right now, went to the park, saw the mayor saying all the things that the mayor is supposed to say and said it was me, the idea that anybody thinks handcuffs or an arrest or, uh, you know, any kind of criminal law action should ensue. If you don't like what somebody says, respond to it in the public square. That's where this is. But to see so many people online, as they constantly do, Jill, it's very frustrating to think that most people can't just Google the criminal code and look up public incitement of hatred, advocating genocide, odious speech, speech you disagree with, Speech that, you know, was on a third rail, immigration, this right, these parents, it's not criminal to oppose, to, to propose an opinion that is in direct opposition to the zeitgeist of the day. That's what this person did. To me, it's a complete prank. But even if it wasn't, it is not illegal.
The release that came out today as well uh, goes on to say that uh, the Coquitlam RCMP are collecting reports on hate-motivated incidents, saying that this is in response to the rise of cases motivated by hate based on race, gender, or sexual orientation. Uh, It goes on to say, though, and this is where I thought things got a little interesting, it said, report hate-motivated incidents, and there's a website to report, but it then defines it, saying hate-motivated incidents are when a person is targeted by another person motivated by hate in a way that is not a criminal offence. Hate crimes are criminal offences that are motivated or suspected to be motivated by hate. And that's exactly my point, and I'm glad you read that, which is they, to their own discredit, and I don't have a lot of respect for a lot of the RCMP, trust me, to their own discredit, they're now getting involved in the talking police the word police, when they even acknowledge in that little, you know, uh, blurb at the end, there's a difference between crimes and speech that you don't like. I'm sorry. The RCMP, with all the threats to this country, a Nazi in the House of Commons, a government that doesn't know what, that the left hand speaks to the right. Now the RCMP is busying themselves, taking complaints about this. I hate to break this to, to your listeners. I mean, my last name is Goldkind. Pretty easy to figure out my religion. You know, the number one source of hatred in this country is anti-Semitism. And we're all clutching our pearls after a day and the Nazis in the House of Commons where the RCMP, which can't vet anybody, lets people into the House of Commons, is saying, call us on our hotline if somebody says something to you that's not a crime. I mean, that is not a good use of police resources. But unfortunately, in this day and age of anti-social media, Jill, where everybody goes running as a victim to the police, They are confusing hate crimes with odious, offensive, ignorant, stupid speech. But there is and there must be a difference between those things. Because, again, looking at this post, which we agree, we both think that this is a punk, the mm-hmm. language, I get why people are offended. It, it is, when you look at it, oh, you, you think, well, this person's actually saying we want, we want a whites-only daycare and whites-only, okay, but it doesn't... It's offensive, but nowhere in this post, even if it was real, there is nothing in this post that says we hate other uh, other people. We hate people that don't look like us. It doesn't say anything about harming people. It doesn't say anything derogatory about anybody. It, it, it says that they are looking for a certain group. So how does that, yes, offensive, but how does that even make it a hate incident? And you, again, you're being more, more clever, Jill, than most hosts and people talking about this subject today, which is you're hitting the nail on the head. And by the way, I'm not so sure it's so offensive, depending on whose politics you are. At the end of the day, you could flip that sign and change the word whites to any other religion, creed, color, race. We would not be on air talking about it. Now, again, I'm not saying whether I find it offensive or I don't. Not not the point but if you just changed that racial group from whites to another one there'd be no oxygen to this story at all that to me is an interesting piece and to quote the great bill maher who did a much better monologue about this maybe five ten years ago jill somehow being an adult means being exposed to things that you hate things that you find offensive things that you find disgusting But you don't put on the victim hat and run around to the police to police speech. If you want to live that way, there are countries, 
quite east of us, where if you say something that somebody doesn't like, if you look at somebody in the wrong way, particularly if you're a woman, by the way, you're going to end up stoned, put behind bars. In Russia, you'll be put in Siberia. Why people want our country, which is a paragon of speech, even offensive speech, to look like other countries where we jail or lock people up for saying ugly, gross, disgusting things, it will never make sense to me, Jill, and it is an increasingly growing problem and danger in a once liberal society. Ari Goldkind, we will leave it there for today. As always, though, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for talking about this. Great to be on with you, Jill. More than 100 handy dart riders, family members and caretakers are voicing their concerns in what they are calling a surge in TransLink's use of private taxis to complete rides. Many attended a virtual town hall. This was held back on Wednesday. It was held in conjunction with the Amalgamated Transit Union, the larger largest labour union representing transit and allied workers in Canada. Now, if you're not familiar with handy dart, it is a door-to-door shared service for people with physical or cognitive disabilities and TransLink's con- TransLink contracts out the service to TransDev, which is a French company. So this is a group, coalition again of riders, advocates, labor groups calling for, the group is called Save Our Handy Dart and they say there are severe safety issues using taxis instead of the Handy Dart van. Well, joining me in studio is Ben Dooley, CKNW producer, the producer of this program. Ben, hello. Hello, thanks for having me and welcome back. (laughs) Thank you, good to be back. We've talked with members of this group before and certainly the issue of you call for a handy dart or you book a handy dart and you get a wheelchair accessible cab in many instance incidents instances instead happens you are somebody who uses handy dart how how prevalent is this so uh just to give you a bit of background uh so i take handy dart every morning uh to get from home to the sky train station to come into work uh and so i will call usually friday afternoon or Saturday morning to book my trips for the week. Um, and so that, that's five trips that I'm, I'm taking uh, every week. And over the summer, I noticed, you know, that I would say 80 to 90% of those trips were um, handy dirt buses that were picking me up and dropping me off at the SkyTrain station. But in the last two or three weeks, I've only had uh, two trips. So I've, I've taken 11 trips now mm-hmm. in the last two, uh, two and a bit weeks. Uh, and only two of those trips were actually handy dart buses. The rest were, were taxis. Do they tell you when you book whether or not you're getting the bus or a taxi? Uh, no. So they don't tell you uh, when you book. And um, it's only started recently where I've been getting reminder calls in the morning. Uh, that my ride is, you know, going to arrive in the next five minutes. And at that point, I'll find out, uh, you know, whether it's a bus or taxi. So I know, you know, what I'm looking for uh, when my when my ride arrives. Does it matter to you which one comes? Uh, in, in all honesty, I prefer to have a taxi um, come just because it's a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. Because with the bus, you have to wait for the, the ramp to come down and to come back up and for them to close it all all up, whereas with a taxi, it's just easy. The ramp comes down at uh, street level, 
and I can just roll in and they strap me in and I'm on my way and it and I I just for that reason alone it's uh it makes it just a, a few minutes quicker and I always appreciate the few extra minutes when I'm commuting. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, one of the issues that was raised by members of this group, HandyDart users, saying that taxi drivers rarely exit their vehicles to assist those who are living with disabilities. You just mentioned, and and I had this experience when my, my sister was alive and in a, in a wheelchair that, that we used the taxis. Uh, much more than handy dart. The driver did always come and secure the wheelchair in the taxi. So I'm I'm guessing in that in that case the could the complaint be it wouldn't be somebody in a wheelchair. Would it, have you ever had a scenario where the taxi driver didn't get out of the car to assist you? No, no. Always the the taxi driver um, will will get get out um, to open the door, uh, make sure I'm all strapped in properly. I would say that that is more likely to be somebody who uh, can walk but is maybe more developmentally uh, challenged or, or maybe somebody who's blind um, is, is where you might be seeing an issue like that. Right. Okay. Uh, what about training? Is there an issue then? One of the issues raised also was that one person in this group said she'd never had any incidents when it came to handy dart drivers, but that taxi drivers, even if you're driving an accessible cab, maybe don't have the same training. Um, I would say for, for the most part, um, taxi drivers are just as, as good at handling or dealing with me, uh, uh, compared to uh, a handy dart driver, sometimes you know they won't know how to secure my wheelchair because uh, some wheelchairs have tie downs attached um, to their wheelchair, which makes it easier to secure. Mine doesn't; it's on the wish list for my next chair. <laughs> but <laughs> whole other story there. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, but then that, that's just a, a simple con- conversation where I can explain hey if you hook it on here um th- that's the the best place so it's it's easy for me but I can I can definitely see you know scenarios where where there could be an issue then do you think it's an issue of i get the the issues that are raised being raised by this group but it seems like people in different scenarios have very different needs and specific needs and like you said in your case you actually prefer the the taxi because it's quicker whereas if they stopped contracting out or stopped using taxis my guess is the wait time would be a whole lot longer because there are only so many buses and it's not like they're about to buy a whole bunch of new buses yeah, I heard um, an interview that uh, TransLink's spokesperson Dan Mountain uh, did last week, and he said that you know if they weren't using uh, ta- cabs to supplement uh, the bus service, it would be something like a hundred thousand people that would be hmm. without uh, without a ride. And uh, you know, I would I would much rather have have the taxi than than no ride at all. Oh, right, for sure. And th- there was another story that was shared, and this was, like like you were saying, different people with different needs and different different abilities. It was a, a mom who shared the story of her daughter, saying her daughter was nonverbal. She was given a taxi instead of the handy dart, but whereas she would have likely been escorted to the front door had she been in the handy dart bus, she wasn't. She was dropped off, as, as people are, from a taxi. But then she got lost, and there was a police search, and it was obviously very, very tense. And 
very hectic for those hours looking for her. It almost seems like there should be a better way of assessing who's okay with a taxi, who absolutely needs the buses, rather than it just being up to you you book the rides and you kind of get whichever one's available. Oh, 100%. I would, I would agree with that. Uh, you know, I can be... I dropped off, you know, at the at the curb, and I will figure out uh, my way to to get to where I need to go. But and and I don't necessarily need that that door to door service. Um, whereas somebody, you know, who is who is blind and and can't, uh, you know, see see where they're going, or if they're dropped off in a, a strange place. Uh, they they would absolutely be uh, be able to use that uh, that door to door service. So I I think that absolutely they should, um you know there should be some sort of checklist when you're booking uh you like hey do you need door to door service because because when I book they'll ask me you know are you traveling alone. Uh, are you traveling with a mobility aid? So I don't think it's hard to add uh, an extra question to that uh, to that checklist. Hey, do you need door to door service? Right. Uh, on, on that ride, and, and then somebody uh, can can be provided with that that door to door service. Right, and and even looking at the numbers that were provided by TransLink, saying that the demand for Handy Dart has been increasing, there's been a bigger increase because of that for supplemental taxi services. Uh, they're trying to hire new operators, but until that happens, there is going to be the need for taxi services. So it seems like you said, when you're booking, if you can ask people, maybe that would help alleviate the problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's just about, uh, you know, being able to communicate uh, what what you need and and being able to know that, uh, you know, that that service is going to be reliable, both both for somebody with uh, a disability and their caregiver um, who, you know, doesn't have to worry about whether the person who is traveling alone uh, will be dropped off somewhere and and, you know, not not be able to get to wherever it is that they're going. Yeah, which uh, seems it seems like a, a bit of common sense. It, it does. It does, really. All right, Ben, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.